But when I go on podcasts like this, or when I have conversations like this, or what, you know, I am, I get it again. And I feel like I get to look into somebody that I might never see again, but I see their true selves. Like people are being really honest with each other and you get a hit from it. I get a hit from it. Like, like, wow, like that's somebody really telling me the truth about themselves. And I felt that way too. And, and, you know, I just, I don't know, we're not going through the best time right now in our country. Like it's kind of been a little, let's say rough. And uh, I just wish there were more of this. There were more ways of, to connect people through this kind of stuff. That was Sarah Heppola. And this is the Recovery Revolution. It's time for the Recovery Revolution podcast. And it is unlike any recovery podcast you will ever experience. This is next level recovery transformation featuring the most influential minds in addiction, recovery, sobriety, mindset, and entrepreneurship. We are transforming the stereotypical mundane process of recovery into one of finding your own personal path to empowerment. This podcast will revolutionize the way you look, feel, and talk about recovery. This is the Recovery Revolution. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Recovery Revolution podcast. And today, I'm excited to announce the author spotlight featuring Sarah Heppola. Now, Sarah was on the show before. She was episode 135, which she shares her story with us, her journey of recovery, and she also talks about her super famous book, Blackout, Remembering the Things I Drank to Forget. And this time, we get an opportunity to talk to Sarah about what happens after she writes the book. What was her life afterwards, and what is her experience like today? So let's dive into Sarah Heppel's author spotlight, but first, a quick message from our sponsors. Are you happy and thriving in your recovery? Do you feel happiness, fulfillment, and joy in your family, business, or personal life? Or do you feel stuck? Do you feel like something's missing? You may not be able to quite put your finger on it, but something is just not right. Now, what if I was to tell you that you might be just a two millimeter shift away from success, from looking at yourself and looking at the world in a completely different way? My name is Omar Pinto. I'm a life transformation coach and an addiction recovery specialist. And if you go to www omarpinto.com this could very well be the life-changing opportunity you've been looking for so go to the website to get more information about recovery coaching group coaching or one-on-one life coaching with me today it's time to transform your life today's episode is brought to you by the rrc the recovery revolution community the rrc is our private recovery membership group that features online meetings, online support, accountability, peer-to-peer recovery support, and coaching. The Recovery Revolution is more than just a podcast. It is a support network helping thousands of people all over the world. So for more information about the Recovery Revolution podcast or how you can join the RRC, then go to omarpinto.com and get plugged into the Recovery Revolution 
today. And if you haven't done so already, be sure to leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It's the best way to show your support for the podcast. And speaking of amazing reviews, today's review is from Millennial. Title is Essential Podcast for My Recovery. I live in a rural area with not a lot of meetings to choose from and relatively few members of recovery in the community. Listening to this podcast and joining the RRC are essential additions for my recovery. The guests are engaging and insightful, very willing to share their stories of addiction and subsequent recovery. Omar's interview tactics deepen the content because he's great at asking just the right questions to add to the interview. Love it. And love this review. Thank you, Millennial. And guys, keep it coming. These are the kind of reviews that will keep the recovery revolution climbing the iTunes charts. So thanks, Millennial and HP, baby. Hello. All right. Folks, today we have Sarah Heppler joining us on the SRC's Author Spotlight. And we're going to be talking about Blackout. It's one of my favorite books, and it's one of the favorite books of everyone on this on this chat right now on this video call. Um, it's one of the things. It's one of the, it's actually one of the very few books I've actually read um, or actually audio listened to. And I love the the fact that Sarah is the one who narrated it, right? Yeah. So it's it's funny. Like I'm looking at you right now, and then I could picture some of the stories, mm-hmm. right? I'm going to try not to picture some of the stories. Don't picture uh, some of the stories. <laughs> <laughs> They're so good. Mishka Shabali is one of the other books that I listened to. Mm. He's another train wreck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was it? I swear I'll make it up to you. <laughs> so that's another, that's another wild ride. So those are, those are some of the few. And then also, uh, oh, my God, the one about the sex addict. Joseph uh, Naus. Yes, now yeah. straight pepper diet. Nuss, the salt, yeah. straight pepper diet. Yep. Fabulous. The, my favorite memoirs. And here I we know. have Sarah, one of my favorite one. memoirs. Thank so, you. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, Sarah, um, before I let the uh, hold on, I see a little. Yeah. Before I start, you know, kind of throwing everybody at you with their questions, and I hopefully, guys, have your questions ready for Sarah. All right. Um, it's been a while since you wrote the book. Oh, like, I mean, it came out three and a half years ago, and then I wrote it four and a half years ago. So, yeah, I mean, before, you know, it's probably started working on it seven years ago. Right. And uh, how much clean time did you have when you finished the book? Well, let's see. I think I was three or four years sober. Yeah, I think. Okay. So what do you got, seven, eight years now? No, I'm eight. I'm eight, Yeah. Okay, so eight years. So we're talking four years. No. Tell us what the journey is, because we just, I just had, um, who was last month, guys? You're going to do oh, this. Amy Dresner. I'm going to do this the whole time. And Amy Dresner. Yes, Amy Dresner was on last. And I asked her, I said, what has happened since you launched the book, right? And what has your life been like, right, yeah. over these last four years since the launch of the book? Sure. You know, in some ways nothing changes. And then in some ways, everything does, you know, I mean, it's a big deal to write a book and that changed my life. And, um, probably the biggest thing that it changed was just that, you know, I am a professional freelance writer. Like I left my job at salon. I was running the personal essay section. Um, and for at least two years I was doing like speaking engagements and talking to college students and 
um, you know, going on tour to places that would, would pay me. And so that was really a, my life. Uh, but then in, in some ways, I'm just the same person, which is this person that's not quite exactly who she wants to be trying to be better, <laughs> you know, like, and, um, I'm working on a second book and, uh, you know, I'm, it takes longer than I want it to. And I wish I, you know, I ate too much yesterday and, and, you know, I mean, it's, just, it's, 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 I'm still the same me. I, I, do, I, the reason I say that is because I do think I had a fantasy that if I wrote a book, it would fix me. And I think that fantasy is very much the same fantasy of what alcohol was for me. And it was, it was a fantasy that I've chased all my life that something outside of me could give me the part that I was missing. And I, unfortunately I'm like so stubborn or whatever it is. I have to keep relearning this lesson. I'll be like, okay, I get it. It wasn't alcohol, but it'll be the book. And then I, and then I'm like, oh no, it's not the book. And I'm like, but it'll be a man. And then it is not that either. So actually I keep learning this and I don't know. I think maybe the reason I have to keep learning is because it's just so damn depressing to think that you're just stuck with yourself for the rest of your life. Well, I, you mean you actually you are. We're all you stuck are. with ourselves for the rest of our lives. You are. And I mean that's I guess it's good news, but it, it's better than the alternative probably, but uh you know, but I think there's just that sensation seeking part of me or that escape seeking part of me that's always looking, you know, looking for the looking for the escape hatch or looking for the the, the little thing that I would come across to make me feel the way that I want to feel. Well, and, on, um, on that same yeah. note, on that same note, we have the idea that alcohol is going to fix me when I've got all my problems. Then a relationship's going to fix me, and then the book's going to fix me. So that's yep. it's, uh, it's still the idea that something outside of me is going to fix what needs healing on the inside. Yeah. So. What kind of so based on that epiphany at some point, you know, you launched it's been four years. It's like, okay, the book didn't fix me. Book right? didn't, didn't fix me. That was like I mean, that was an epiphany that was kind of like a like a torpedo in my stomach, mm-hmm. to be honest. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. it was funny because the book did really well and I'm so grateful for that. And so nothing <laughs> I say, like, I wanna be really, really clear that that to have a book that A gets published. Mm-hmm. It is something you have to be super grateful for. Not, not because I should, but because it just, it's hard. It's a lot of hoops to jump through and you have to have like, my timing was really like, there's a lot of luck that's involved in this. Mm-hmm. Obviously there's a lot of hard work and skill, but like, but like you can't deny the certain like serendipity of it. Mm-hmm. And I was so grateful for that. But, um, and, and my book couldn't have kind of come out and been received better. Like it was, I have a lot of problems with expectations in my life. Mm-hmm. Like I, I always live my life before I get there. And then when I get there, I'm like, oh, this was better when I was thinking about it. But, but the book was actually like as good. It, it was so good. And I loved it. And I love, I still love it. I get emails from people all the time and I love that. It's the one of the best parts of my life. But, but the discovery that it didn't fix me. And then in some ways it made me a little lonelier mm-hmm. because I think everybody, it was suddenly like everybody knew me and I didn't know them. Mm. And I was like on this like imbalanced table all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was real strange to me too. Cause where I come from is like, I was a quiet little girl that was like the observer. So like I knew people, but they didn't know me. I was like, not interesting. 
And so I knew them, I knew all these things about them. And so now all of a sudden it sort of switched and I don't know how to deal with it. And, um, it was lonely and it, and it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of like a, a tough revelation, but, but what do you do? You just write another book, you know, and then hope that maybe, maybe the next book will fix me, you guys. (laughs) Okay. Okay. No, no. No. Okay. No. Okay, okay. no. All right. So um, a man's not going to fix me. The oh, book's no. not going to fix me. Okay. Oh. The book's not going to fix me. God. Right. So what's going to fix me? Ugh. I don't know. That's such a deep question, you know, and I think, I think where recovery takes you is that you have to get deeper with your relationship. This is why recovery offers this like relationship with a higher power, oh. right? And I think the higher power, and you and I talked about this last time, like this is the hardest part for me. And I think that a lot of my intellectualism and a lot of my reliance on rationale, like it really gets in the way of my finding a connection to something that is really not intellectual in the end. It's something about feeding the soul. How are you going to feed the soul? And, you know, I, what I found is that, the best way to fix this thing in me, it's just going to sound, I don't know what it's going to sound, but like when I go into nature or if I'm like on a mountain or I'm near water, like that is the thing that I'm like, okay, okay, I'm good. But the problem with life is you can't spend your life on the beach. (laughs) You can't just be like, okay, this fixes me. So I'm going to do my work from the Pacific coast. Now Um, you have to go back to life. And you don't always have that uh, ability to ground yourself in this spectacular uh, mystery of nature. But I do know, at least I've narrowed it down to this, that, you know, that, that those mysteries and that unfathomable sort of beauty and marvel like that, that helps me. It grounds me and puts me in perspective, too. I think that's the other problem I'm having. I think I always have it is that I make myself too much of my own thoughts. You know, like I am, I am, this has unfortunately been rewarded to me through my career, you know, like, like I'm being rewarded for it for basically making myself like way too much the center of my own life. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm really, I I think that the work resonates with people because it's not self-absorbed. I think I am deeply interested in other people, but I, do know that part of what would relieve my suffering is to get out of my head, get out of my own thoughts. But you know, though, it's like these old habits that we have where you just think like, but that, but I have to be thinking about myself. I don't really know any other way to be. Who else would think about me this much if I weren't doing it? So anyway, I got to break old habits. A lot of growing to do, you guys. It's what it sounds like is I am the wizard of Oz. Sure. Oh, you mean because I, yeah. You mean because like um, I'm behind the curtain. Like, I, yeah. I, because yeah. here's the thing, the thing about recovery and the thing that is, is the thing that feels the best. The thing that fills us the most is our opportunity to give back. It's our opportunity to be of contribution. So here I am with this amazing book, that yeah. touches so many people's lives, and I know it does because yeah. I got the emails to prove it. I do. I got the. I have the evidence to prove that I am of contribution, that I am being of service, that I am helping others. 
Check. Yes. yes. Okay. But there's the connection factor. I'm not really connecting. Well, that was a huge problem. I mean, when people send you emails, that it's very hard to know how to respond to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And stay right size. And stay right size. Mm-hmm. But also, like I said, like they've read my book. I haven't read their book. You know, like I don't. I don't I, I, we're we're a little bit off off balance here. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, with that, I think a lot of my life I wanted to be seen and known. And you can see that in my work. Like I seem so desperately to want to be seen mm-hmm, and known. Mm-hmm. I think I got only half the equation, right? Because real intimacy comes when you also can see and know the other person. Mm-hmm. Um, exchange. Yeah, there has to be an exchange and a connection. Mm-hmm, and I mm-hmm. think where I what where the first book left me was with only half of the equation. Mm-hmm. They and relate. Now. They relate to you. Yeah. But because you don't know them, you can't relate to them. Yeah. Yeah, I okay. think that was, uh, that was a problem. Yeah. Yes, okay. We are totally, this is fantastic, first of all, Sarah. Thank you. This is You're awesome. This is, what, this is what I was looking for. But before <laughs> we go any further, who can relate to Sarah? <laughs> all right. Come on. Who wants to begin? Share, share, share. Well, you asked me at the beginning if I was sober. Yeah. And it, it, exactly what you just said, I'm looking for the connection. That's a thing. But it's the connection to me that I don't have. It's the connection to me. And that's, that's something I keep looking for. That's fascinating. That is fascinating. I don't even know how to answer that one. Well, what, what, can I ask you, what do you mean you, you don't have the connection to you? What do you think that means? I think when I try to, to, find my authentic self and to act my authentic being, my authentic self. I don't really know who that is. I don't, you know, it's, it's I'm looking at somebody acting as me. Totally. Well, okay. Yeah. I have a lot of thoughts on that. So, so the first part is that you, you talked about connection and I really think connection was one of the reasons that I drank more than any other. Like I really badly wanted to be connected to other people. And, um, and I think that it allowed me to set aside my own insecurities and fears long enough to connect with them. Um, and when I was thinking about giving up drinking, that was the hardest part for me was, was being in exile, you know, being alone, knowing that I was going to lose that, that brethrenship of the bar. Um, and I, and I have a lot of, uh, resentment at the culture because we just don't make it easy for, for sober people, like especially drinkers. I mean, you know, it's difficult with any drugs too, but like with drinkers, you go to the restaurant and like the first thing that gets thrust in your face is alcohol. And it's just so hard, but, but you're talking about something deeper than, than even that, which is the discovery of who you really are and what you think and feel. And I do know that, for me, alcohol was a way for me to be what other people wanted me to be because I wanted to be loved. And so a lot of what I did was lose what I really thought or felt. I didn't know sometimes. And I think that's true of a lot of women. I've, I've actually heard from, I remember a friend of mine got sober and 
she was in a marriage that eventually she got divorced, but she wasn't sure if she wanted it or not. And we used to take these long walks around the lake and she would just say to me, like, I don't even know what I want. I don't even know who I am. I don't know. It's like she, like her whole self was in a deep freeze. And I think it had to do with the way that she had used alcohol to be what other people wanted and what other people needed. And I think women do that, especially she's a mother. I'm not, but she is. And the alcohol allowed her to be present for them, but disappear for herself. That's how I would say it. And that's, in a way, you know, alcohol, I see this uh, with a lot of my friends, but also I, I read it in stories and stuff. I mean, it has become this like mother's little helper for a lot of moms because motherhood is so lonely and caretaking is so lonely. And then you have this thing that kind of gives you <sighs> solace while you're, you're going through that and gives you energy and things, but, it, but you start to lose yourself. I, I think losing yourself, that was, that, to me, that was my whole sense of my rock bottom in the end was like, I didn't lose my house and I didn't lose my job. And I, did, I, I kept all these things that were like markers of my success, but I had lost myself. And to yes. me, it really manifests through this like random, casual and slightly, maybe not even slightly dangerous sex with strangers that I was going through at the time when I was living in New York. And just the way that I just didn't care. Like, I just would be like, I don't care. Like, I had sex with somebody. I don't care. Like, that's really not me. Like, that is really weird. Okay? That's really, really numb and weird. And I'm not saying that if you, whoever you are out there, feel that way that you're weird, I'm telling you that me, me, super sensitive me that cares, like, that doesn't want to take off her clothes in gym class. Like, that's, that's what's weird. So, so for me, that's not who I am, but I had alcohol is so, it's so numbing. It really numbs a person. I think, and I think people, what they do is they drink not to feel, but then they forget that it takes away everything. It takes away the joy and the, and the, the, you know, like it numbs you completely so that you don't know at all. Like, yeah, okay. You're blocked. You're blocking away the pain. Great. You're also blocking away the parts that make you yourself. Mm-hmm. So, I, so anyway, I think you've identified what probably feels very singular to you. And I'm sure in some ways it is very singular. And I also think is sort of the universal struggle of the, the heavy drinker, which is that you lose yourself. Yeah. Yeah. But how many of us here really know who we are? Does it, does, sure. you know, if you, if I were to say here, you know, who are you, you know, and, and, and do you know who you are? Well, okay. I, I have thoughts on that. I mean, I think that maybe we over rely on the phrase. Or were you asking other people to answer that question? Uh, that, that was, a, I just threw that out into the mix. Okay. Um, Go for it. Go for it. Well, well, I mean the, the, the phrase authentic self um, is, is funny because I think we use it a lot and we, we do have this sense of like, Oh, there's one day that I'm going to have an authentic self. I'm sorry. We've got cat issues. I'm, that's what I'm doing over here. Um, so anyway, uh, there's going to be one day where I have an authentic self and that's not true. It's, it's, it's almost as much of a mirage or maybe it is as much mirage as this idea that one day I'm going to be happy. Right. And I'm going to be complete and, and be a whole person at the same time. There is an estrangement that comes with alcohol and drug abuse that really, really makes you a stranger to yourself. And you do things that are not in your value system 
mm-hmm. and they are not mm-hmm. what you want. Mm-hmm. And they are contrary. They're sometimes actively contrary to what you want. Mm-hmm. And you're sitting there going, who is this person? And that is what I, when I, when I say I lost myself, that's what I'm talking about. You know, it's more essentially, I lost my value system. I lost my sense of purpose. I lost my meaning, you know, so, so yes, I agree with you. And also I think of the self as more like an onion, you know, like that's a cliche, but like, you know, like you're just going to keep peeling off layers or maybe it's not, it's like an onion that shapeshifts because you change. Right. And so like who you are one year might be different. And, and, and I reserve the right to contradict myself and change my mind. And I think humans should and do. Um, but, but I think, but I think the damage, the damage is about acting in, in direct opposition to your, to your values and beliefs and also, also who you want to be Mm -hmm. like, like who I, ah, I was not, I was so full of wish. I was so full of wish for the person that I could be. But the person that I was every day was so far from that person, you know, because the person that I was was the one that stopped on the way from the subway to get the six pack and came home and drank the six pack in front of the reality television show and then drank, you know, then went to the store and got another six pack and then called on my, you know, like just, I was just stuck in this, like, is numbness, you know, just like sameness. And in my head, I was like, one day I'm going to write a book and one day I'm going to fall in love. And one day I'm going to take these risks and I'm going to be, you know, up, but, but my life as a drunkard was the same old shit. Well, what I like about this and about being authentic and about being happy, this idea, the concept of it is directly related to your values. That's exactly what it is. Who you are is who you, is really who you want to be and who you want to be is based on your values. What do I care about? Because right? it's a lot of times the reason why we drink is because we stop caring. And the reason we, we stopped caring is because we made a wrong turn somewhere and we became somebody we didn't like. Maybe I wanted to be a writer and my mom says, I got to be an attorney. You know, yes. maybe I want to be a dancer and my dad says, I got to be a doctor. Right. Maybe somewhere along the line, somebody says, hey, I want to be single and not have kids. And society says, what's wrong with you? How come you're not married yet? How come you don't have children? So I start to assume that there's something wrong with me because I'm going in conflict with my true values, with my authenticity of who I am. So that provokes in and of itself unhappiness. So it's it's just... Yeah, I would agree with that. Although I would also say that, yeah, sometimes you... It's not because you drink because you stopped caring. You drink because you want to stop caring. Yeah. You want. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, And then the other other thing I would add is that sometimes our authentic self is not freaking possible. I mean, and sometimes our goals are not possible. Like you listed as several things that are really hard to pull off. Like, like being a dancer and being a professional writer are really mm-hmm. freaking hard to pull off. And the, and the truth is most people won't do them. And that is hard, but that is also part of life. And there is pain in that. And I think, I think part of my growth in, like I was drinking to avoid pain. And then part of my sobriety was about kind of being able to say, okay, some of these things that I want I don't get, and that is painful, but I don't have to drink through it because Mm -hmm. drinking through it doesn't make it better. It makes it worse. But, but at the same time, at the same time, right. And and again, being a writer and being a dancer, you know, being, you know, 
you know, a player for the Knicks, whatever, right? Like, I know what my limitations are, okay? If I'm being unrealistic about my goals, it's one thing. I want to be the president of the United States, right? Whatever. I mean, sometimes our goals are, 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 are so lofty that maybe we're asking to fail. We're asking to prove that we can't succeed. But what if it's just that I want to be single, what if I just I want to live with someone? What is it? What if it, I I just want to work at Whole Foods, right? What right. if I just you know? What if I want to live in India? You know, like it's it that's not that's nothing that's out of the ordinary, out of the question. It's just yeah. a, it's just about what's preventing me from doing the things that I want to do. If it's because of something that I learned in my past, something that was taught to me, some sort sure. of programming, some sort of limiting idea or belief that says to me, no, you can't do that. No, you shouldn't do that. You should do this. And this is kind of like what I'm talking when I talk about being your authentic self, right? Maybe I don't want to be Catholic, but my I was born into a Catholic family. And it kind yeah. of goes against like what I want to do. My mother was a Jehovah's Witness or is a Jehovah's Witness. And for 18 years, I had to go and I hated it and I was angry and I was miserable. And I would fight the system and fight the system and I would drink and party and sneak out of the house and get into trouble. Yeah. Right. And I didn't care. I think that what we're saying is that alcohol is a way to, well, well, maybe what we're saying is that sobriety can help you reckon with who you are and your real values and get you closer to what you want. You know, for me, I mean, it's interesting. I, I think alcohol was a lot of delusion for me. So like when I got drunk, I was like, I'm going to be a famous writer. Like, like, but you are. <laughs> yeah. But not until I quit drinking. Uh, yeah. No, you know? I, obviously. And that's a, that's a fluke in some ways. I mean, I don't know. My point would be better, made better if I worked at Whole Foods, but, uh, <laughs> but, but I, I think the fine point that I'm trying to put on, on, your larger point, which I think is an important one, is just that all of this is about meeting, like looking the world in the eye. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, and it's like, who am I? What do I want? What can, you know, like, what is possible for me? How can mm -hmm. I get that? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and realizing that alcohol, though it presents itself as this very seductive way to negotiate that problem really doesn't help it at all. You know, it either numbs you or it creates delusions or it sidetracks you or it gets you stuck or it creates more pain. For a lot of us, it creates new problems. Um, so, yeah. So, so being able to, to deal with the world on its own terms, being able to deal with myself on my own terms. I mean, you know, a lot of my, a lot of my drinking was about just not wanting to be in my own skin. Well, and I think that that was kind of what Marla was kind of alluding to. Like, how do I get, you know, how do I connect with myself, right? So the big question is, how do I connect to myself? And a lot of that is for us, because I can't see myself, especially, you know, when I'm in that sort of, an, uh, when I'm in that negative space, it's difficult for maybe for me to see my qualities. Maybe it's easier for the people around me to remind me of, of who I am. And so I think that's where your circle of influence and your family, your friends, right, are so important when I can say to them, you know what, I just, I don't connect, man. Like, I don't, I don't even connect with myself. I don't even know what that looks like. 
and yeah. to get and to get some feedback from others. I think that that in and of itself is is so important because when we're navigating, we know, there's so many things that we just can't do alone, Sarah. There's just so many things we cannot do alone, and I think sure. that kind of a big question is is a, is a big example of of just that things that we can't do alone, even an analysis and a connection with myself. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And I also think that a lot of what we're lacking, you know, we lack communities as a general, like as a culture, Mm -hmm. you know, like we have this sense that we can do things on our own. And the more we're getting into the 21st century, the more we think we can do everything alone. Mm -hmm. Like, like I'll go full days and not see anybody Mm -hmm. because I live at home and I and I work from home. And I mean, I live at home, I live alone and I, and I work at home. And so, uh, you know, I think we've lost this sense of that we need community. You mentioned family and family is really important, but not everybody lives near their family anymore. Or wants to. Oh, well, really? Seriously? Yeah. So, you know, so then what's your community going to be? And that is what AA provided me. And and mm-hmm. one of the, I, I, you know, we talked about this last time, but, you know, like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not here to promote AA because I know it doesn't work for people. And it didn't work for me for a long time because I was really like, oh, you guys with your slogans and all your blah, blah. But um, but I will tell you, listening to other people's stories helped me find myself again. Mm -hmm. That weird irony. Because you it's sort of like like he in through your stories, I start to understand mine. I think that's very powerful. I think it's basically like the essence of storytelling. I think it's the essence of AA. And I think it's also the, the the sort of thing that Marla's talking about, which is that like, I don't know who I am. I can't connect with myself. When you start to hear p- other people articulate it for you, it's like, oh yeah, that's me. That's me. And it's to me, I started to track <coughs> myself through hearing other people talk about their struggles. So, you know, AA became my community, but it doesn't have to be other people's community, but find a community. Like you, I think, I think that connection to other people is so essential. Yeah. That's what we're promoting here. We're not promoting, we're not promoting AA, we're promoting community. And if it wasn't for share, we wouldn't even be on this call. So the podcast gave people an opportunity to hear stories. Then it gave them an opportunity to come together into one big community and now they're, we're in a smaller, more intimate community, but it's all about community. We all know each other. Everyone on this call right now has seen the other. Like they know who the other person is, even though we're thousands of miles away from each other, we're still connected on an intimate level. It, it changed the dynamics, right? And, and, and it's funny because, you, you know, the question you asked Marla, and it's like, oh, you know, you know, what's your sobriety and that kind of thing? Marla's like, no, nah, sober. But I like this community. I'm here because of the community. I feel comfortable here. I feel safe here. That's that's what we're promoting. You know, the idea of finding your tribe and finding a community that you feel comfortable with and not judged. That's the, that's the key. Marla, anything else? Uh, no, you, you t- knew exactly what I was talking about. <laughs> okay, so we hit it's it. Connections with other people. Yes. Yes. Okay. Who's got the next question then? I see Cindy's got her mic. Yes. Bring it on. First of all, I love your book. Like absolutely love, love, love your book. Cause it was like listening to half of my own story. So thank you. I had lots of blackouts and woke up in very interesting 
predicaments. We'll see. It happens. It does. So <laughs> you kind of you kind of touched on something that I go through, and I think you and I have about the same amount of sobriety because I've got about eight years. Cool. Do you think that reinventing comes because of the blackouts? Like, like you lose so much time that you don't even know what you did. So you're kind of trying to pack it all in there. To- That's interesting. I mean, I've never thought of that as being specific to blackouts, although blackouts are an extreme version of drinking. I've thought of that as, as a, an outgrowth of, I lost so much time to drinking. So yeah. I mean, to answer your question, yes. Um, I spent so much of my life getting drunk and I feel so far behind. I feel feel behind. I'm 44 years old and I sometimes feel like I'm in my twenties and like mature wise, um, maturity wise. And, and, you know, it's just, there's so much that I am trying to pack in and, and make up for. I mean, also one of the, this is probably not what you're talking about, but one of the biggest shame, like regrets for me is that uh, I went through school, both high school and college, being told that I was really bright. And um, so I just didn't read the material. I really didn't do the work. And I got pretty good grades. And I was really proud of the fact that I didn't try at all. And I would always brag about the books. I'm a, I'm a, I was an English major in college. And I bragged about the fact that I didn't read the books that were assigned to me. And that has resulted in me being a 44 year old woman that is like trying to read like the curriculum of a, of a four of freshman English, you know, like I, I need to, I haven't read, I shouldn't even admit the books that I haven't read on this podcast, but they're really bad. Like I've been trying to make up for it. You know? There's no judgment and, here. I know. Well, it's like, it's like animal farm for some reason. Like I've never read, read an animal farm. It's a really slim book. But like, it'll come up and people are like, oh, you know, Animal Farm. And I'm like, no, I don't know Animal Farm. That's like one of like a hundred books that I have never read. And it is really embarrassing because people really assume that I've read these things. And I feel like I'm in a constant catch up mode and I can never go fast enough. I'm never going to have enough time. I'm never going to know. I'm never going to get that time back. I spent so much, like so much of my time went to the bar and reality television. Like, it's just like, it is sunk. It's gone. I can't get it back. Um, it's tough. But you know what I, what I think is very special about that is that really reinforces my desire to never go back out to drinking. Cause I now know that would be more time. And when I was in my thirties, I was very concerned that I was going to lose party time. Okay. Like in the way that I'm talking about, like regretting what I didn't do, I was so afraid. Like, what if I miss this party? What if I miss that party? What if I miss that? And then I'm like, all those parties are the same. Like I literally have been to like hundreds of parties. I'm not going to crack. Like, there's not going to be like one ultimate party. It's I'm done. Like I've spent enough time going to the parties. So, um, so all my feeling behind, like I am, it gives me a little bit of insurance that I'm not going to go back out. And and that part is good. Um, yeah. So that's, that's my answer to that question. 
No, I totally get that. I feel the same way. Like people think that I know what I'm talking about just because I've faked it for so long. Faked it for so long. That I don't sometimes even know what was and what was real and what wasn't real when I was drinking because I just faked it too long. It's awful. (laughs) It's so awful. And now, you know, when I was getting sober, I had a lot of panic attacks and that makes sense from a biological standpoint because there's there's some withdrawal stuff that's going on um but also i really think a lot of that was around this kind of coming home like the chickens coming home to roost on that behavior Mm -hmm. that i had pushed that fraudulence and that faking it for so long and gotten away with so much and was almost just like i mean it was just like all the bills had stacked up and i just couldn't even think about how to begin paying them. Um, and it oh, was yeah. when I, when I moved from Rhode Island to Texas, I didn't have a driver's license and I just sort of pretended that that didn't happen. And I drove in Texas for a whole year without a driver's license. Wow. I had to go take the test at the age of, you know, 35. Yeah. Because I, I had, I didn't have one anymore. So I had to go get one. And I drank and drove with no license. That, yeah, yeah. I told you I was crazy, oh. I did not <laughs> lie about that. Did we go over that when you shared your story? No. See, I don't think you mentioned that. I just remember later. And then, like, this past year, I went up there for a visit, and I saw people I hadn't seen in 20 years. And then I got reminded about shit that I blacked out about that I didn't remember that I blacked out about until they were talking about it. Like I knew what they were talking about. And I'm like, Oh, sure. Okay. Maybe, maybe I did that. I don't know. That's wild. Sarah, just so you know, I mean, Cindy's got a very similar story to yours. We like, (laughs) she would, she went by Cindy L. She was like, can you just put Cindy L? I don't want, you know, my name to get out there too much. Cause it, 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 there is, there was, I, I was like, I don't remember that part. And there was so much, there was so much, right? It, it just, it's a continuum. It's like, how long do I want to stay on this roller coaster ride? How long do I want to stay on this miracle ride? Because I could just keep adding, I just keep adding stories along the way. You know, I just keep adding more, you know, more wreckage along the way. So when I listened to your book, I was like, yes, I was separated at birth from this woman. It was like, it was beautiful. I loved it. Thank you. In a twisted, beautiful way. Sorry. All right, so let's, Tell us about what's going on in the romance section, Sarah. What's going on? Are you dating? You know, any guys? What is the deal? Come on. Omar. <laughs> Why not? Uh, well, I don't know. Eight years uh, in sobriety, Sarah. Uh-huh. Yeah, at some point, you know what I mean? It's like, do I, you know what I mean? Do I want to be the cat lady or do I want Aww. to? <laughs> being the cat lady there is nothing wrong with being the cat lady at all but i'm curious i'm curious what's are you taking any steps you you want to bring it on um you know i think the first years of my sobriety were were really absorbed were i was really obsessed with both getting sober i mean i really did that thing where i not only did i not date anybody for a year i didn't date anybody for two years and i didn't touch anybody i mean i was freaked out Mm -hmm. and i think all of that was kind of like low-level ptsd from the random sex stuff. Like I just was like, no way. Um, but I did start dating and I started dating, um, online. I did, you know, just cause it's, 
at this point, we're in the 21st century and that's how you meet people. And yeah. especially if you don't go to bars anymore. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how to date. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. And it's been, I've been doing that on and off now. So like, so like everybody else, like, you know, I'll go on the apps for a little while and then you find somebody and then you're with that person for a while and you're off the apps and then that ends and then you get back on. So it's sort of like you go on and off and stuff. But now it's been like seven years, six or seven years that I've been doing that. And I've found myself to be like, I'm quite good at it. <laughs> like, and, and part of what I mean is I am really able to date like an adult these days. Mm. I show up. I recognize that if you don't want to date me, it probably has more to do with like a lack of, you know, connection or, or it's it, it, like, it's not a big deal. I don't take, I used to take everything so personally. Mm-hmm. And I needed guys to like me, even if I didn't like them. That's going to sound pathological, but I did need that. And it, and it, I was sort of hell bent on like, I've got to get that person to like me. And then the second consideration is, do I like them? And, you know, I really enjoy dating at this point. I get to meet all these really cool and interesting men. Uh, I just got back from a week in Austin and I was dating there and it was, I met just some wonderful guys. Um, and and most the vast majority of those dates are not really going to be anything more than that they're just an opportunity to connect with somebody for a small moment in time and share like oh this is my life this is my life okay and then we go our separate ways i used to do that like drunk and having sex with them and now i have it over coffee and i'm like nice to know you bye and it's lovely and i and i it's it's a much better healthier way to connect and move on with people. Um, and every once in a while I fall for somebody and that's always exciting. And it's a, it's an, it's a learning opportunity. And I, I absolutely would like to have a partner. There is no question. I, I very much want to have a partner and, um, and I'm hopeful that I will one day and I've come close several times and, you know, if and, or, or I would say it this way, like, Cause sometimes people talk about relationships like they're only good if they last forever, which is silly. You know, sometimes relationships last for a month and they're very successful. They just only lasted for a month, you know, and I've had some very successful short relationships. And it's not because like, that sounds like it's just because maybe they, they weren't going to be longer, but I would but like I, to have a longer relationship with somebody at some point. That's I would like. I would like well, that. But that falls along the lines of you meet certain people for a reason, a season, and for a lifetime. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, I think with dating, it's the same thing, right? I think that, in, especially in today's culture, yes, right. It's 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 okay not to like. Okay, well, we're going to go on a date, so I guess we're going to get married. Right, right. right. I mean, like, that's ridiculous, right? So, so maybe, maybe some of these people are in there for a reason, or the relationship extends, it's for a season. And I'm just supposed to learn something from that. What is I totally agree. I totally agree. What am I supposed to learn from this experience? That's what I ask myself a lot. Mm -hmm. I ask myself that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Even the painful ones, you know, you just, when you get, I've got my heart dinged a couple times and it's like, what's, what am I supposed to learn here? And, and that's new for me because it, because I used to just be like, why me and whatever, but like, 
But now I do see that as like, okay, there's something here for me. Mm-hmm. I need to learn this. I need to listen closely. I can grow from this. And I'm very grateful for that. I think, you know, uh, the only way to not be hurt in this world is to never try and to never leave yourself vulnerable to risk. That's not fun. I mean, I try, let me tell you, I've done some of that over the last eight years too. There's been a couple seasons of Netflix and uh, <laughs> it's fine. It's great. My knowledge of Netflix is great. I'm much smarter for it, but there wasn't much joy. There wasn't hurt, but there wasn't much joy. It's part of the spice of life, right? Yeah. It's it's the it's the uncertainty. It's the unknown, right? It's it's wonderful, right? The butterflies in the stomach, the anticipation, right? It's like when you're about to get a bag of dope. You know, there's your stomach's turning and the anxiety yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Sorry, some of you guys, that was a bad joke. Nobody left. So Anyway, bottom line is there is this whole idea of building anticipation in my life about so many things, going on a vacation, going on a first date, having a a cool conversation with somebody I don't know. Yes, yes. Change the dynamics in my life. I can't, you know, I I, I, I guess, you know, absolutes, you don't want to say, you, you definitely don't want to live in absolutes, but I personally don't believe that we weren't designed to be alone. I just, I don't believe that. I, we, I agree we, with you. We need that connection. And if if right now it's like, okay, I'm just going to do, I'm, I'm cool with this. I'm getting the connection that I need. I'm learning a lot, right? And eventually, it took me 10 years to find my wife. 10 years. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, there's really, what, what the, there doesn't, there's not a time limit. I think it's just a matter of like, you know when you know. You, yeah. And also, I want to say one more thing, which is that, uh, when I reframed dating so that it wasn't about finding the one Mm -hmm. and it was more about like, how can I learn from this person or how can I enjoy this time with this person? It totally rechanged. It changed everything for me. And two of my good guy friends are guys that I met through those dating apps. And both of them were like, I don't know that we, that you're into me, but would you want to hang out? And I was like, yes. And we hang out and they're awesome. And I love like those, both those guys are good friends of mine and they tell me about their dates and it's awesome. And I'm so grateful that I've had those, made those connections. I love it. I love it. So real quick, before we uh, open the floor for more questions, I'm curious, the people that you wrote about in the book, okay, the people, when we're talking about, when you're talking about being in the AA meetings, Right, and you're kind of taking people's inventory, that kind of thing. <laughs> right? Were there people in there that you knew, and then later on were like, "Sarah, was that me you were writing about? Has that happened?" Um. Well, that the first AA meetings that I went to were in the West Village of New York, and I had moved to Dallas ah, by okay. then. So years had passed, and when the book was coming out. I went back to that original meeting to kind of see if I could find people, but it had changed dramatically. There were only a few people from the sort of original crew. Cause at that point, probably four years had passed mm. and they didn't even know who I was. <laughs> they were like, <laughs> they were like, Oh, we kind of remember you. You were a quiet person. You sat in the back and cried a lot. Um, Cause I never spoke in that meeting. 
I never spoke. So nobody knew me. <laughs> and so, um, so no, nobody okay. said that to me. I do think probably some people have, have thought incorrectly like, Oh, this is me or something, you know, but like, I know who it is and I've never seen those people again. You know, it's funny. I, I go to meetings and I write down things that I think are really smart. Cause I like, I like every, like, I like to write things mm-hmm. down and I have noticed people in my meeting, like they watch me pull that notepad out and they're like, Oh, I don't want to talk anymore. Cause they, <laughs> I think they think I'm taking notes for a piece, but I'm not, I'm taking notes. Cause I like what they were saying. <laughs> and, and I felt bad about that. Cause that's the, the shitty thing about having a writer in your AA group is like, <laughs> you can trust her. Like, but I am a really, I really do not, F around with people's anonymity Mm -hmm. and I don't F around with people's secrets. Like, I just don't believe it's my, like, I don't tell other people's secrets. Mm -hmm, And I mm -hmm. take that, I hold that very sacred. Um, And when I can, uh, like the people that I knew in that book that were in the program, like I went to them first and said, Hey, I'm thinking about writing this. Would you be okay with it? And usually they were just like, whatever you need to do. Like my name's not in it. I don't care. Right. So, but I, I, I do try to be really respectful. Yeah. And I'm not, and I'm not saying there was anything specific in there. I'm just curious. Cause if I was no. reading this, I'd be like, dude, she's writing about dude. me. I know. <laughs> I know. Like, um, it's true. I, I, um, when I read other people's AA books, I'm like, oh, your group is going to be really mad at you. <laughs> you know, like, well, how did you do this to them? And it, and it's funny. Um, and, you know, and, and there's a lot of weird moral stuff around writing around AA. Like those of us who do it, like we're already walking out on a, on a line to do that because you're, you know, there's mixed, there's mixed feelings about whether or not you should reveal your, your anonymity. So anyway, um, but yeah, no, I've never had that, um, that I'm aware of. But I'm sure there is a lot of like, don't say stuff to her. Like, I'm sure. How could there not be? I mean, come on. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. All right. So Cindy asked a question. Marla asked a question. All right. Who wants to ask a question? Who else? Raise your hand. I'll unmute you. There's Buddy. Buddy. Hey, Sarah. I appreciate you uh, opening up enough and being vulnerable enough to write that first book, I was very curious about um, the uh, aftermath of that. And you answered all of that. And uh, mm-hmm. I was just curious. Now, I know you're looking at writing a second book. Mm-hmm. How are you approaching that differently than your first book? How is it? You know, what are you? I mean, are you have a different thought process? Is it? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I think that whenever you are going to write a book, something as big as a book, you know, you're kind of looking at like, what's the unifying story of my life right now? Like, what's the big story that if I were to like lay out all the things going on in my life, like this is the thing that is just screamingly obvious. Mm -hmm. So when I was 35 years old, the thing that was screamingly obvious was my drinking and my drinking problem. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that was it. That was the obvious thing to write about. And I did, Mm -hmm. but I'm 44 now. It's almost 10 years that have passed. And my drinking problem is no longer on that table. Um, it's a, you know, it's an issue. I mean, I go to Mm -hmm. recovery meetings, but it's not the thing. So when I look at my life right now, what is the big thing that sort of takes up all my time or my, you know, and, and for me, the big question or sort of like the, 
the big passage for me has been getting into my forties and not having a kid and not having a husband, but having wanted both of those and not knowing if that was really a blessing or a curse and not really even knowing, did I choose this or did this happen to me? Um, and so, so this next book is a lot more around that. And it's a lot more around my, you know, looking back at a lot of choices that I've made in my life and seeing how they led me here to this place. You know, Omar said something earlier about like, nobody should be alone. And I really believe that. And I was a very lonely child and I wanted desperately not to be alone. And I think that's why I became a writer because it was like a companionship that I could always have and control. Um, wow. That made me like sad to say, uh, anyway, um, what is so ironic to me, or maybe it's not ironic. Maybe it's just the way people are built is that as an adult at 44, I am still in that sort of lonely place. And I don't know why that is. I think sometimes we create patterns that are more comfortable than serve us, you know? And I think that might've been what happened to me, but this book is looking at that. And so uh, I've, I've outlined some, like it's, you know, it has different levels of like vulnerability and, and, um, and, 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 and personal struggles. Uh, but it's, and, and, and in some ways it is blackout part two, because a lot of it is about my life after, after that book ended, you know, and, and relationships that I've had and, and, um, medical problems that I've had and struggles, you know, and, and reaching, you know, it'll focus a lot on the years in my forties and, and in my forties, that's been a, a weird deal. I mean, for, for me as a woman, fertility got real, real serious, real, real. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in my thirties, I was like, I don't know, maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't. In my forties, I was like, Oh, it's not happening. Oh, okay. <laughs> that window closed. <laughs> so that was intense for me. So that's what that's about. Um, and I'm working on it and it's due in September and it's, you know, talking mm-hmm. about it is sort of like, I feel like I'm, you know, writing and I still kind of feel like I'm drifting through the fog. So, you know, books become, they, they reveal themselves to you as you write them. You know, it's like, it's like a relationship or anything else. You don't really know what it is until you're happy until you've had it. Mm -hmm. Well, we have, we have a lot of women in the SRC. We have a lot of women here right now. This is, this is a big topic. The, The topic of being married, topic of having children, the topic of being, you know, in your forties. Right. And then here's the big question. Like, what do I do? What, what are my options? You know, the time is shrinking, right? Uh, which one of you women wants to speak to that? Oh, Renee, Renee, sweet. Let's go. Yes. yes. Yeah. I just said I'm way past my forties. Um, I did have my children. I, I'm at such a different place in my course of recovery. Um, I got sober for the first time in 1990 and my, my drinking before that time was very much like your story. I read your book when it first came out, even before I was in the SRC or any of that. So, I mean, I I should have reread it because it's not that fresh anymore. Um, But, you know, I, I definitely related because I did all the blackout sex stuff, you know, when I was a, a single mother back in the seventies and eighties. Um, and then, you know, when I got sober in 90, I had almost 10 years of sobriety 
And I've had several relapses since then, the most recent of which was about a year ago, or a little over a year ago now. Um, but I really still relate to that, trying to find something to fix me. Um, and I have always felt that way. I mean, when I was, when I was a young adolescent, I was just an avid reader because I would lose myself in. Yeah, reading. yeah, for sure. That, that was my out. And, you know, then I found, you know, I actually didn't start drinking until I was like 26. And then I started drugging quite a bit in my late 20s, early 30s, and then got over that and then just drank heavier. Um, but I still find that feeling of wanting to find the magic potion that's just going to make me feel that I am who I'm supposed to be. And, you know, now I'm 70 and it's like, now who am I supposed to be? I mean, I'm a retired grandmother. I mean, I live in a beautiful place. I live up in the woods too. And I, I look out and, you know, I see the woods and the sunrises and everything. I mean, I love my life here. But every once in a while, I'm still like, is this all there is? Yeah, of course. And, you know, that's just really hard. And yet, you know, I mean, I want to stay sober. I intend to stay sober. Maybe I just have to accept that, you know, whatever my concept of what my life is supposed to be is probably not what it's supposed to be. That it's supposed to be exactly what it is right now. Um, but sometimes it's real hard to convince myself. Yeah, yeah, I relate to all of that. Here's 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 the beautiful thing to to wrap all this up is that there's so many similarities here. Like mm -hmm. we've all been able to identify with this idea of trying to figure out who we are, what's my place in this world, what's my purpose. You know, Suzanne just turned off her mute, so Suzanne, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, it was just interesting. Your book is is lovely, by the way. I, I love the book. Um, went back and listened to the podcast again. But, you know, so it's interesting to, to hear you guys talk about losing yourself because my scenario is I think that I never found myself. So I got pregnant at, well, I was, so I was raised in the Baptist church. My dad was a deacon. That's That was my upbringing. Uh, I got pregnant at 14. I had my son at 15. I got married because I thought that was the right thing to do. And I became a mom. And frankly, um, not tooting my own horn, but I, I got a job. I got my GED and I was a mom and I was a damn good mom. I mean, I was present for him. I was, you know, I was a mom. And then I uh, divorced and I met my now husband and I kind of jumped into that. Um, so I don't think I ever found myself. I don't think I lost myself. Yeah, 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 sure. I think yeah. I never, that age where I became pregnant and jumped into motherhood when I, at 15, for God's sakes, like I never had those years of finding me. So then I, I started drinking, um, not excessive until I was in my mid thirties. Mm -hmm. But even still, I was doing the mom thing and I was doing that and I never stopped to find myself. And then as my drinking became worse, I was afraid to find myself. Sure. It, it took me being sober for a couple months to go, damn, I never found myself. Like I went from 14 to, you know, having to do what I was doing. I mean, so it's been interesting. Um, but yeah, that's all I got. 
That's fascinating. Well, I mean, that's a really good example of how we can come from such different worlds or such different circumstances and then end up kind of in the same place, you know? Um, and I'm, I'm sure that what you just described is true of a lot of people. And I don't think that they need booze for it either, by the way, like you can not find yourself out of, you know, just staying, staying busy or giving yourself to one person after the other or whatever, you know? Um, and it's true. Yeah. I mean, I I think you, you, you've made a great point and, and, uh, and maybe it's, I don't know what you don't lose yourself. You don't need to ever find yourself. I mean, Maybe that's, that might even be true for me too, to be honest. Powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. Wow. This has turned into something I never would have even imagined, but we segued into so many beautiful different areas. And, you know, you know Sarah, here's the, here's the cool thing. SRC is dominated by very strong women. So it's just only appropriate that I, all, all of my guests so far, spotlights have all been women and very strong women, right? So it just only, it, it seems very appropriate. Um, so to close up, <clears throat> tell us in the in the four years, right, since you wrote the book, what's been your biggest aha moment? Or maybe you have a couple, but you know, if one would be great. Oh my god. <laughs> I just drew, drew a grenade in there. <laughs> I know. It's really hard. It's like it's like if I had a long time to think that I I'm sure I could come up with an answer to that. You know, um, I will tell you that it strikes me as tragic, but maybe inevitable that when I was in that drinking place that I write about in the book, when I was at my lowest moment, I thought I was the only person that had felt that way. And one thing that happens when you write a book is that you put very specific personal details in there and you think they belong only to you. And what you learn repeatedly and I would say like thousands of times <laughs> is that those things that you thought were uniquely your own are shared by all these other people. And that there are moments, this is why I liked drinking, by the way, that there would be moments when people would drop the veil and they would tell me the truth about themselves. And I would be like, Oh, I'm not the only one. And when I gave up drinking, I thought that was going to be it. That was it for me. And I wouldn't get that experience, that sort of that sort of wonderfully connecting human experience again. But when I go on podcasts like this, or when I have conversations like this, or what, you know, I am I get it again. And I feel like I get to look into somebody that I might never see again, but I see their true selves. Like people are being really honest with each other. And you get a hit from it. I get a hit from it. Like, like, wow, like that's somebody really telling me the truth about themselves. And I felt that way too. And, and, you know, I just, I don't know, we're not going through the best time right now in our country. Like it's kind of been a little, let's say rough. And uh, I just wish there were more of this. There were more ways of, to connect people through this kind of stuff. I don't even mean recovery so much when I say that. As much as I mean people just being honest in their hearts about who they are, like honest and compassionate about who they are and where they came from and, and, and returning, like giving that to someone else too. And that's just been a huge gift of this mm-hmm. book experience to me is how much of that has come back to me. And really, regardless of how you feel about yourself, right? What that is, is just an authentic exchange of energy. This is what yeah, we're feeling. Yeah, I agree. Right? That's, all, that's all we're feeling right now. 
our our being vulnerable, us saying, I don't know where I'm at. I don't know who I am. I, I'm still trying to figure this out. I'm on this journey. I'm on this quest, which we all are. We're constantly evolving and we're constantly changing. But that makes us relatable. That allows us to connect in a very special way. It's just the authentic exchange of energy and in community. The community, that's yep. what it is. Yep, yep. Beautiful. All right. So if I'm going to just close with this. If you have only one suggestion you can give to our listeners, what would it be? It's never too late to be the person that you want to be. Solid. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. It's never too late to be the person you want to be. All right. Sarah Heppola, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. Yay. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. All right. <laughs> I love you. I love you, ladies. I love you all. Thank you for joining us today on the Recovery Revolution Podcast. For more information about the podcast, to access the show notes, join us in the recovery revolution, or to learn about one-on-one coaching with me, then go to www.omarpinto.com. Make sure to check out the website or schedule a free consultation with me today. It's time to join the recovery revolution.